Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 11. Today's guest is Anna. Anna started her career as a bosun in the Royal Canadian Navy, but switched to the military police branch to become a close protection operator. I hope you enjoy her story. Yeah, we can just jump right into it. So Anna, welcome. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited about this podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so where did you grow up? Uh, okay, this is kind of a lengthy story because where I grew up wasn't so straightforward. Okay. I was born in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So that was in, I probably shouldn't even say the year, but it was in 86. And uh, most people don't really even know where that is, but that's in the Balkans of Europe. So born in Sarajevo, the war happened. Most calf people know about the war, or at least the older dudes did. So whenever they'd meet me and hear about that, they'd be like, oh yeah, I've been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so born in Sarajevo, moved to London, England, spent a couple of years there. That's where I learned English and went to school. And then uh, let's see, in 92, I moved to Canada. Winnipeg, Manitoba. So I've moved around a lot and it's always really tough for me to say like where I'm from. Ultimately, my family landed in Windsor, Ontario. So that's kind of my go-to. If anybody's like that I'm probably not going to get to know or just like in passing, if people ask where I'm from, I just say Windsor, Ontario because it keeps it super easy. How old were you when you left Bosnia? So I was six years old when I left. It was actually on my birthday that we got out of there. I just remember my mom coming home and telling me, grab your bag, put your favorite toys in it, and uh, we're going. And I was like, oh, my God, which Barbie do I bring? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why she told me to pack up stuff because I just packed up like totally useless stuff, mostly toys. But I didn't know where we were going. I really didn't know what was kind of going on I knew things were getting bad because um like they didn't hide anything on tv and my parents didn't really censor me very well I guess so I I saw a lot of things on tv I also wasn't allowed to sleep in my bedroom anymore I had to sleep in the bathroom because there was no there were no windows in the bathroom and um it's more fortified because it was more in the center of the home you know, there's tiles. And the idea was that it would be the safest place for me and my brother to sleep. But I hated that. And so uh, my mom let me sleep with her one night with a camera. This is kind of the weirdest thing in my memory was a camera pointed out the glass out the windows so that we could see what was happening outside without looking at, you know, out the window. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she told me to pack up my stuff. I did packed up all my toys. Then I, all I remember is seeing this, you know, giant cargo plane camo painted. And I, I got on with my mom, my brother, but not my dad and said goodbye to my dad and got onto this plane. There were no seats in it. It was just like, if you could imagine a C-130 
a bunch of people getting on that, but there's no seating anywhere. It's completely all open and a bunch of people just sitting on the ground, you know, getting motion sick on this plane. So yeah, that's kind of my memory of leaving Bosnia. I didn't see any Canadian soldiers, but I also wasn't allowed to leave my home. Yeah. So my dad stayed behind for two years in hopes of trying to salvage our home and what we had there, but that was obviously in vain. So you guys went from there. Was that directly to London that that plane took you? No, it was uh, a little convoluted. So if my memory serves correctly, I left Bosnia, went to Budapest, Hungary, and I was there for six months. And then from there, went to London, England for uh, two years. And I said that I uh, got to Canada in 92. That's wrong. I, I arrived in Canada September of 1994, actually. And do you think that almost like having those experiences when you were younger sort of helped with some of that resiliency later in life? Yeah, I'd like to say that I've developed pretty thick skin, even though I like to say that I wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm I'm a pretty emotive person. But I think that, yeah, just going through so many different changes in my life has made me much more resilient. And what made you want to join the military? So I had an entirely different route set up for myself when I was younger. I always thought that I was going to be like a a detective or some sort of policing type that solely worked on like murder cases and high profile serial killers and stuff like that. Because growing up, that's the kind of stuff that I was really into. Like Mm -hmm. I loved reading mystery novels. I loved scary movies. So for me, it was like, oh, I'm just going to go be a cop and then become a detective. And so when I finished high school, I went into university for criminology. So basically, criminology is the study of why crime happens, what makes a criminal through a sociological perspective, as opposed to just saying psychology is the reason why somebody commits a crime. So yeah, I got into university for crim. And my brother, who's older than me, he went to college a few years prior. And uh, my parents just ran out of money. So they didn't have a way to help me pay for university. And um, I needed a job. And I was online with my ex at the time, looking at like job fairs in Windsor. And I saw this huge listing for, you know, Naval Reserves, come join us. You can be a cook, you can be a bosun, you can be Naval Communicator, just all these different trades. And I was like, oh, heck, why don't we go to this job fair and see what it's all about? And uh, yeah, so I went to HMCS Hunter, which is a Naval Reserve in Windsor, Ontario, and met with a recruiter who, you know, obviously hyped it up, told me all about the Navy, gave me some job options. And at the time, I really like hadn't envisioned myself as being a sailor or a soldier or anything like that. But he he made it really palatable. And he said, you'll get $2,000 every single year that can go to, towards your university. You'll get a summer job, be great pay. Plus, you get to do boot camp. And I loved watching war movies growing up. So I was like, oh, sweet. It's going to be like full metal jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like... That's sweet. I love that movie. So it was kind of enticing to me. And and also it was just so wildly different than anything I'd ever done in my life. And it was kind of defined of what my parents probably would have wanted. So that was also kind of a, a driving force for me, I think, because I just wanted to do something different than what they kind of expected of me. So I signed on the dotted line almost immediately and I was super stoked. And uh, I signed as a cook. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So if you looked at like my military records, 
uh, you would see that I was a cook for like half a summer because I had done my application, I think, in like November of 2005. And then in 2006, I uh, got sworn in. That summer, I went to CFB Borden, did my boot camp. And by the time I finished boot camp, I was no longer a cook. I was a bosun. Yeah, I always wonder because we had a, a bunch of people in our BMQ and they were like, oh, you know, I just joined as a cook because they told me that I could do that and then switch over right away. And I wonder some of those people maybe didn't get the chance to switch over afterwards and then maybe they got stuck as something yeah. they didn't want to do. Yeah, yeah. That's always a dicey game to play. Sometimes it works and then sometimes it doesn't. For me, I, I didn't even think of the military as a long-term thing. I thought of it as a means to an end to pay for school and to have some fun and do something different. So, you know, cook at the outset wasn't really like a bad go because I was like, oh, I like eating. So this is going to work out great. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it, it would pay better than, you know, if you were a cook at a restaurant or something, probably as a summer job. Yeah, for sure. The pay, the pay was definitely a, a big draw at the time. While I was at the camp, I really enjoyed the more hands-on soldiering part of it. Mm -hmm. And so... I think my course warrant or course sergeant or somebody like that was like, why don't you just go be a bosun if you like weapons and getting dirty and being cold? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll go do that instead, because I don't really want to be in the kitchen, you know? So yeah, that's kind of how I initially got into the calf. So it was a very like benign start. I didn't think it was going to turn into anything at all. Mm. That's super interesting. And when you were growing up, were you into sports and adventurous things or were you just sort of a little more subdued? <laughs> well, I think my, my childhood was a little bit unique because of the war and because we moved around so much. Mm -hmm. So there, I, I feel like in a way there, there might have been a little bit less opportunity for me to try my hand at a, a bunch of different things like sports and swimming and, and whatnot. So I had a very, I would say, quiet childhood. I didn't really get into a lot of things. My mother's an artist, so I kind of took after her and got into art a lot. So really, I didn't do any sports growing up. I mean, I played basketball in grade school and high school because I really liked that sport. And I'm from the Balkans, so go figure. <laughs> but I actually, so I got it really big into music because my dad's a huge music fan. And I, uh, I remember, I think it was ninth grade, I was on the second string of tryouts for the basketball team and it was on a, a night that I think Matthew Goodband was playing <laughs> and uh Moist and I don't even know what other bands and I thought what would I rather do go try out for a basketball team or go to this concert and I was like oh I'm gonna go to this concert this is gonna be sweet <laughs> like I love Matthew Goodband so so yeah that was kind of the end of my like sports career growing up <laughs> uh really short-lived I think now, like, you know, being in my 30s, I look back at those years and I think, oh, no, I wish I uh, I wish I'd gotten into team sports. I wish I'd gotten into swimming or basketball or hockey or football or whatever, just because it's, I find that it would have been nice to have that kind of foundation to build on. But just because, you know, a person doesn't spend their formative years playing team sports and sports or any kind of sports doesn't mean like they can't pick up this kind of lessons learned and tools that a lot of kids growing up playing sports have learned. Uh, it just comes a little bit later. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I did a lot of sports when I was younger, but I think it was just, I was an only child and, you know, it was sort of a way to fill the time and it definitely 
teaches some discipline. Cause I remember so many days where I was like, Oh, I don't want to go to hockey practice or soccer practice. And my mom's like, no, you signed up, you made a commitment. Like you have to go. It does sort of instill that discipline for some people that might not have so much of it. Cause I, if it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have gone to the practices, but yeah, yeah, it's super interesting to see, you know, now when I look at your Instagram, you're, you're obviously super fit and super active. So that came a little bit later in life for you. Yeah. So you bring up discipline. I, uh, I would say that I did not have any, even, uh, you know, in my first year of university, I, I didn't really understand what it took to be a successful person because, and this might come off the wrong way, but like, I kind of, I mean, I always did well in school and I kind of always got away with the bare minimum and still did well. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I'm the same. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I never, I never pushed myself. I never really challenged myself. I also was going, I, I went through kind of a lot of trauma you know, uh, with the war and moving around. And I, I think it was really tough for my parents as well. So I didn't really push myself and I, and I was able to get away with it for a really long time up until I hit university. And then that was kind of a, a huge wake up call for me because gone were the days where I could just show up for a quiz and do all right, you know? And I think joining the military, it didn't happen at the outset there either, but once I started going through the military pipeline and doing the training and, you know, showing up for those training nights at HMCS Hunter and then going away for my trades course training or sailing on a ship, over time, I really started to develop this like sense of it's not always about being comfortable and what I want and when I want to do it. Like, things aren't going to always be on my terms and I have to, you know, show up because it, you know, people are relying on me to do my job and to do it well. And so that's where I really developed the discipline that younger people in sports probably get a little bit earlier. And so did you work just as class A or did you do class B or C contracts? So I, I worked during uh, the school year as class A. So just, you know, I think it was one Tuesday a week and then Sometimes on the weekends, lots of like parades here and there. Um, and then in the summertime, I would do a class B contract, you know, go out to Halifax, which is where I did pretty much all of my trades course training for Bozen. And then uh, do a little bit of sailing. And then come September, I'd be back in school studying and, and kind of got into that rhythm there. How long were you a Bozen for before switching to, did you switch to MP? Yes. Okay. So... In 2009, I took a Class B contract out to CFB Esquimalt, Victoria, British Columbia. And from there, I did basically full-time Class B contract work on uh, the MCDBs, the Minor Coastal Defense Vessels, for five years. And uh, not exactly five years because I had left and gone to um, fleet school and and did a a contract out there for the last little bit. And then in... um, 2014, I crossed over to MP because at that time, if you wanted to do close protection, you had to be MP trade or MPO, I suppose. But I've seen the message come out before and I know they've sort of flip-flopped in the past where it was open to all members and then just MPs. And now I think you have to be combat arms to go out for selection. 
Yeah. So um, I think the branch is really trying to dial in how they want this specialty to move forward. When I went through the pipeline, it was MP only. And then we realized that, you know, we're really like the MP branch on its own. It's not a a very large branch to begin with. I want to say like we have somewhere around 2000 MPs in the CAF. Could be five, could be two. Feels like two though. Uh, so it's a small pool of people. And then to draw from such a small pool of people, an even smaller pool of individuals who had the interest to, mm-hmm. to do something like this, but also have the capacity and the capability to do this, just really dwindled down our numbers. And so we really found ourselves kind of backed into a corner with how are we going to improve and evolve this specialty if we don't have a larger pool of resources. So they've opened it up to combat arms, but then they kind of reduced it to certain rank. Okay. Okay. And so when you switched, was that solely so that you could go CP or did you switch and then hear about CP and then decide that that's what you wanted to do? Um, So what actually happened was I wanted to do CSOR. Okay. I'd gone to a CanSoftCom recruiting drive and met, you know, like a JTF2 representative and a CISO representative. And I think CJRU might have been there as well. But um, yeah, when I had heard about CISO, I mean, I'd heard about CISO prior to that, but I got to know more about it. And I thought, well, I'd really like to do that. That sounds something that's super challenging and uh, right up my alley. But at that time... You know, I'd been in for eight years in the Navy, reserve bosun. My my operational experience was kind of limited to fleet weeks down in San Francisco and, uh, you know, search and rescue missions off the coast of British Columbia, which, you know, looking back at it, I, I learned so many valuable lessons being in the Naval Reserves. But to me at that time, it didn't feel like that was nearly enough experience and and knowledge under my belt to have the audacity to apply to, you know, CSOR. And so I thought, okay, well, what's a good stepping stone to CanSoftCom? And um, at the time, I'd been working at a fleet school at WorkPoint, and there was an MP there who was just kind of on his way out the door, but helping us out in the meantime, before he got out of the military. And he told me like, hey, why don't you try Close protection, you know, like it's pretty cool. It's a higher level of training. It might be something that's up your alley. And I looked at it deeply into it, talked to some people, and I thought, okay, this is this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to switch over to NP, go uh, Reg Force, apply to CP, and then you know, in a couple of years after CP, I'll apply to CSOR, and you know, Bob's your uncle. That's that's it. It's going to be too easy. And so yeah, that's that's basically what I did. I put my paperwork in in 2013, went through the whole VOT process. And uh, in, I think, April 2014, I, uh, I got my message saying, you're going to board in for my MPQL3 starting June. So I guess you had your criminology degree. So that was a good prerequisite. And then I, I think people who have their, is it the college police foundations course? Yes. The requirement? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um it kind of worked out perfectly for me because I had that criminology degree that I wasn't using at all. So that uh, definitely came in clutch. And I guess in a way, everything kind of came full circle because I initially thought that I was going to be, you know, some detective cop person. And I'm, I mean, I'm nowhere 
anything like that right now, but I'm a little bit closer being a military police. Yeah, I would say definitely doing some cool stuff now. Do they have a minimum amount of time that you have to spend as an MP before you can apply to close protection? Um, No. As as far as um, I believe that hasn't really changed. So when I got to the Military Police Academy in June of 2014, it was a six-month program, and I finished in November. And uh, I think the Camp Gen for CP had already come out. And um, I got posted to 14 MP flight in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, we, we can talk about that uh, after. That was harsh coming from British Columbia, beautiful BC. So I, I had arrived to my new unit in November, end of November. And I was on CP selection in March the following year. Oh, wow. That's really quick. Yeah, I had basically, I got to my new unit and I said, this is what I want to do. It's been on my list of things I want to accomplish since I joined this trade. And they were very supportive about that. So, Yeah, it's really good to hear that they were supportive because you hear so many stories about people who want to do a certain thing and their unit isn't supportive and it just takes them forever, you know, years to even end up on a selection. Yeah, yeah. I think also what what definitely helped me at the time was, well, when I was at the academy, the commandant at that time was a close protection operator himself. And he spoke very highly of it. And he advertised it a lot and kind of tried to rally as many people up, potential candidates up for it. And uh, I always wanted to do really well at the academy, especially with the shooting package and the physical stuff to kind of lay the foundation for my future to show people that, you know, I was a switched on individual. I'm a hard worker. I'm a pretty decent shooter and I'm very physically fit. So I think word kind of traveled back because again, like small branch. So mm-hmm. word traveled back to my new unit that, you know, here is this individual who's outwardly expressed interest in CP. She's fit. She did well in the academy. And uh, I I think they already kind of knew like, okay, she's going to be coming in and she's going to be asking for this. So they were probably already a little bit ready for for the paperwork when it did come in. Right. And I guess just to backtrack a little bit for those that listen to the podcast that might not be Canadian or might not be military and know all of the acronyms, do you (laughs) want to just give a quick little blurb on what close protection is? Sure. Yeah. So um, close protection, which I think is called Protective Services Detail in the United States, PSC, yeah, basically is a a bodyguard service to our high-ranking generals in the Canadian Armed Forces, so namely our Chief of Defence Staff, our Vice Chief of Defence Staff, our Deputy Minister of Defence, and our CJOC Commander, uh, Canadian Joint Operations Command Commander. (laughs) That's a mouthful. But also, it could be like our once our two-star generals deployed anywhere internationally. So it's, it's not always the same person, basically. And uh, yeah, we just provide protective services to these individuals in Canada and abroad in permissive and non-permissive environments. And how long is the selection or uh, assessment center for that? So it's changed since I've gone through. Um, when I did it, it was located in Albert Head, on the island, Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And it was five days. And um, they changed it, I think, in 2017 or 2018. So now it's 
held in uh, CFB board in Ontario. And um, I should know this because I worked one. I worked two, actually. I, I think it was three days total. Yeah, I'll say, I'll, that's all I'll say about that because I, I can't quite recall. Just three days. And it, it, it looks a lot different now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've, they've completely reworked it. I think it's the same for, for a lot of trades or a lot of specialties that have that assessment center over the past few years, it seems, with the personnel selection officers getting involved. And I think a lot of that process has been reworked. But yeah, so for the people listening who don't know, it's, you know, with different trades or specialties in the Canadian forces, we call it an assessment center, but it's basically a selection, which is various. It could be, I mean, some of them are two or three days and some of them are up to, I think, a week or maybe 10 days. And you're basically put through various tests, like physically and mentally, and it's very stressful and you usually don't get very much sleep. And then at the end, they determine whether or not you can go on to do the course that will allow you into that trade or specialty. So after the assessment center, then how long is the close protection course? So that hasn't changed too much since I did it. It's uh, just over two months long. The location has changed though quite a few times. So when I had gone through, it was in uh, Meaford, Ontario, CFB Meaford. And then a few years later, they kind of switched it so that part of it would be in Borden, part would be in Meaford. And now the CP unit called um, Canadian Forces Protective Services Unit has uh, taken it under their helm. And now it's in Ottawa. Okay. So, so just to <laughs> kind of make it less confusing, close protection is uh, a capability that's controlled by the military police branch, even though we have, you know, combat arms uh, members. Mm -hmm. And um, for a long time, it was under the control of the Canadian Forces Military Police Academy for, you know, at the time, obvious reasons to them, because that was the educational institute for the military police branch. And so, and they had, you know, better capabilities, um, better facilities to use at the time. And so it made sense to have the course run out of there. But um, we've since switched it just this year where the CP unit has taken it under their control. And so now it's run out of Ottawa and it's run by individuals who are working full time at the CP unit. So it's obviously we're going to have a little bit of growing pains moving to a different location, but I think ultimately it's going to be great because now the program is, is taught and run by people who are consistently doing the job Mm -hmm. every day. Yeah, that, that makes sense. In your preparation for the selection and the course, did you follow a specific training plan and did you have people that had done it before sort of guiding you and what to do to prepare for it? So I, I should preface this by saying that I did the close protection course two times. Okay. The first time I, so I did the selection in 2015 and then shortly thereafter I was course loaded and did uh, my first stint in the spring of 2015. So for training for that course, it was very much like your typical CrossFit style workout, but lots of running. So it wasn't too complex. It just focused on running, strength training, calisthenics. But yeah, lots of CrossFit. That's what I really liked. Um, at the time, I was really heavy into Olympic lifting. That was kind of my thing. I mean, it was really tough because I was 
a brand new MP patrolman. And I was now training for a course, for selection and a course, while also doing shift work, which was a totally new experience for me. I had done shift work on ship before as a bosun, but nothing like this, really. So it was a lot of waking up at three o'clock in the morning, doing a workout either in my apartment or sneaking the base gym keys and, and working out at the base gym before my, you know, 545 shift started. Um, yeah, yeah, I actually uh, made a little agreement with one of the um, gym staff that I could use the gym when when they weren't open, like before my shift. Yeah, that's yeah. a good agreement. <laughs> yeah, so I um, obviously I don't think everybody knew about this agreement. It was very hush hush at the time, but I think enough time has uh, passed now that I can uh, outwardly say that, which was so clutch. You know, the detachment in Moose Jaw is very small. There was only four patrolmen total. Oh, wow. Uh, one mass corporal, one sergeant, one warrant. And that was it. That was the whole unit. Plus, we're doing 12-hour shifts on a crazy rotation that didn't make any sense. So, you know, if one person had a sick day or an injury, had a chit and couldn't work, or if somebody even went on course, forget it. You were going to be double-hatted, triple-hatted. So it was pretty hectic. And it was definitely a mental grind as much as a physical grind. But yeah, you know, you just got to be a little innovative with your workouts. Did you feel like you were adequately prepared physically for the selection? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think I had ever doubted that I wasn't going to be successful. When I was at the academy, I think I won five, four or five, you know, top female athlete of the month awards every month there. And so, and being at the academy helped me train really hard mm-hmm. too, because I was able to work out at their gym every morning and every evening. So I'd already kind of had a good foundation and, and I was quite confident with selection. And same with the course. When it came to my physical fitness, I felt good to go. But the mental aspect is a totally different beast. And also for somebody who had, again, never done sports growing up, team sports, there was a whole mental aspect to it that I still needed to develop. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, you know, for like long-term success. And on that course, you do shooting, tactical driving, and what are the other, I guess, phases? Yeah. So the course starts out with a, a shooting package, which is, I, I think it's great. Uh, I don't want to say it's like the best shooting package, but it's a very, very good shooting package. And that lasts for two weeks, I want to say. One week for the pistol and one week for carbine. And you do your testing. I'd be wrong now. I can't even remember correctly. But yeah, so there's the shooting package. Then there's reaction to attack. So drills on what to do if uh, your team falls under contact and you're with your VIP, your principal, and going through those drills of, you know, with vehicles and without vehicles. Then there's also individual bodyguard drills. So if you are providing protective services by yourself or you're alone for whatever reason, there's a, I want to say like a week on, on just that alone. Motorcade driving, driving just in general, is really important. It's a huge piece to our job. Usually that part gets outsourced to a third-party location. Like I've done the evasive driving course down in Blackwater or Academy. Academy, Academy, Academy yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I, I still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I think it's Academy. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, but it just doesn't even make any sense why it would be Academy. 
But anyway, so it's neither here nor there. The Katamai used to be Blackwater before right. uh, the PR disaster. But what I've also done it uh, in Tundra, which is a Canadian facility in uh, Stainer. And well, yeah, I've done it twice in Tundra and in the uh, Academy. So yeah, that's another piece. And then um, unarmed combatives, that's also a really big piece uh, because in CP, you're not always going to be gunned up and having a really good fighting foundation is important. So we did a lot of combatives, unarmed combatives in the evenings and then throughout the day during scenarios. Do you follow any certain, like, do you guys do um, BJJ or striking or is it just sort of a mix of everything? Yeah, so it's MMA. It's a mix of everything. There's a little bit less emphasis on jujitsu, which is unfortunate because jujitsu is my favorite part. Okay. Um, but the the theory is, is that if you're on the ground, you know, fighting your opponent or your enemy in full rig, you're at a at a grave disadvantage there. I don't know if you've ever fought in place before, but it, it is not fun. So the idea is to stay standing as much as you can. So lots of kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA. And then obviously you have to do some jujitsu because you need to figure out a way you got, you have to fight your way out, out of a ground position. Especially I find for smaller person against a larger person, if they're untrained, and even if you have a smaller person who's trained in jujitsu, like that's such a big advantage on the ground. Yes. Yeah. Just kind of going back to uh, training for a course. So for my first course, I um, I really didn't have a lot of unarmed combatants experience, uh, aside from like one ninth grade fight. Mm-hmm. that I got into uh so I really I really did you win though <laughs> um debatable you know uh, I got I got suspended so I don't I don't know if I really became the winner in that one um so in my first attempt at the CP course I had done the the whole course from beginning to end but I wasn't successful on the final x and so they they didn't graduate me and but while I was there I definitely found that a big weakness of mine was that I just really didn't know how to fight. And and most importantly, I, I didn't have any confidence in defending myself without a gun. So when I trained for my second attempt, I signed up for a jiu-jitsu MMA Muay Thai club in Regina, Queen City MMA, they used to be called. I think it's different now. But um, yeah, so I signed up with them. And I trained jujitsu and MMA like five days a week for a good year and a half before I went and did my second attempt. And by then, when I'd shown up to the CP course again, I was like a, I guess, totally different person when it came to to that. Mm -hmm. I had the confidence that I needed. And did they give you feedback after that first attempt? Like, here are some things that you should work on before you come back? Or was it sort of all on you to determine that? Oh, oh, I got a lot of feedback. Uh, yeah, so some good, some very constructive and some not so good and, and maybe not so constructive. Um, my first CP course was uh, a very big life lesson for me. I learned a lot of things about myself on that course, but mostly I learned a lot of things about the world and how the world really worked through that course. So I, I went into that course very naive because, you know, like I had said, Usually when I took on something, I didn't really meet a lot of resistance and I'd usually be successful. But mind you, anything that I'd really done prior to that wasn't nearly as challenging or maybe norm breaking as me trying out for CP. So when I showed up for that course, 
they had said, we need women in CP. We're looking for women. There's That's a huge gap in our capability. So like, if you're a fit woman, come out, give it a try, see if it's for you. We'd love to have you. And that was kind of the general feeling that I'd gotten about CP prior to getting there. When I got there, it was a bit of a different story. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe maybe because they, it was just a different group of people. Maybe they didn't think I'd even get that far. Not really too sure. Maybe it's just old guard versus new. But um, yeah, I definitely hit a, a block when I got there. And um, I would say half the people there, half the staff there were all about it. Like, you know, heck yeah, send it. And then the other half was just like, absolutely no way, not on my watch. So yeah, so I, I got a lot of feedback. Sometimes it wasn't constructive at all. And I think it really hurt my self-esteem and my confidence there because I was being corrected over over things that others weren't being corrected for, um, or I'd be singled out for a behavior and that everybody was partaking in. And yeah, and so it was definitely a really difficult time for me because I was doing well when I when I got there I was performing well hitting the checkpoint but over over time they definitely whittled me down and whittled down that confidence uh, and looking back at it now I think that you know I had the capability to be successful I just didn't have the right frame of mind to believe in myself and mm -hmm. so I, I let, you know, obviously I had some very positive people there with me, but I also had naysayers who were louder in my head than the ones who were trying to lift me up. And I really let those naysayers kind of get the better of me. And it's just kind of like this snowballing, self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I'm getting singled out all the time and I'm getting in trouble for things that nobody's getting in trouble for. So maybe really I am not very good at this and maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And, uh, and then it kind of just into this belief that I, I maybe I didn't even belong there because it was just it was simply becoming too difficult to perform at the level that they wanted me to perform at while also trying to drown out the fact that some of them just wanted nothing to do with having me there. It definitely makes it worse too, because, you know, it's hard not to let that get in your head. And for me, sometimes I've made up scenarios in my head where it's like, oh, they, they think this of me. And yeah, there's definitely, like you said, the naysayers. So then the second attempt, was their attitude towards you different? Or did you just simply learn to sort of block that out of your head? Yeah, so so things definitely shifted after that initial course, partly because I'm fuzzy on the details, but so I wasn't successful on the course and there was a, a lot of chatter about what, what had happened on that course. And then there was an investigation because there were some individuals and I, I want to say a small percentage. It wasn't, you know, indicative of the whole culture, but there were individuals who were definitely in the wrong there and had, had done some things that were not in line with the way the CAF wants to proceed ahead. Mm -hmm. And so there, there was an investigation after that. And I think um, it really brought things to a head for the capability so that by the time I had shown up for my second attempt, it was a whole different vibe. There was me and two other women on that course. And from the onset, it just felt different. A, I wasn't the only, which, mm -hmm. you know, I think any woman can attest to when, uh, when there's at least one other woman in the room and you kind of feel like, oh, okay. Like I'm not the only one here. So were you the first woman to go through that program or were there any that had gone through before that? So that's a little bit 
tricky to answer. Okay. Um, close protection today, as we know it, within the Canadian Armed Forces, myself and one other female um, are basically the first. But the CAF has done CP since, I think, 2006, 2005, actually. There have been women who've supported the role uh, domestically and internationally, but none that have done the course, except I believe there was one who did the course, was granted the badge, but was never, never filled the role. Basically. Okay. okay. Um, so, so yeah, I guess modern day CP, even though CP is not very old, just me and one other female. And then, so it was totally different when you went for that the second time, and then there were two other females on the course. Yeah, so completely different atmosphere, a lot more welcoming, I would say, for everybody. I think they really kind of dialed in how they wanted the past and the future of CP to evolve. And it was a totally different experience. And it was it was wonderful. It was great. Obviously, I had the confidence of my uh, jujitsu and MMA training. So that that helped me a lot as well. Just night and day, I guess. I felt the genuine support and mentorship from my instructors on that course. And I don't think there was any point on that course where I felt like I was being singled out for, you know, some arbitrary reason. If, mm-hmm. if I didn't perform well on something, it was directly attributed to my performance in a task and not because I'm a female. Right. Okay. Which, you know, obviously it shouldn't matter at all, but yeah, sometimes cognitive biases. Yeah, that's really good to hear that they seem to have sorted themselves out for that next time. Yeah, for sure. And I think for anybody that's listening, uh, any woman that's listening and has ever thought about doing close protection, you know, regardless of what has happened to me, you know, in the history, CP has definitely evolved significantly, I think. And there's a lot of male allies here in close protection to make women feel like, you know, this isn't just, you know, a boys club anymore. Mm-hmm. And so after you finish your course, what would the typical day of a close protection operator look like? Um, you know, it's, it varies so much depending on the capacity in which you're doing your job. So for me, when I graduated the course, I was almost immediately deployed to Baghdad, Iraq. So I was the first female CPO to ever deploy for the CAF. Nice. Um, That's that's my like small claim to fame, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So my daily life, I mean, it obviously varies based on the principal schedule, but um, either you're waking up, maybe getting in a workout in the morning, uh, taking the boss to wherever they need to go and coming back, going back out again, or just staying in for the night, PT, dinner, hang out with the dudes, go to bed and, you know, rinse, repeat, or if there are no moves, then it's a lot of training, mm-hmm. um, as much training as we can get in. I think that kind of goes for any specialty unit that's high tempo, as mm-hmm. we are. Anytime that there's like a lull in actual mission, it's always training, whether it's firearms training, combative, motorcade driving, doing advanced recce work, just trying to make things better for the next team. Mm-hmm. So after someone becomes a close protection operator, are they then posted to Ottawa or is it something that maybe they go back to their MP unit and then they just go on a deployment when they're needed? Yeah, so it uh, it can vary 
for I, for the most part, once you're completed the course, you will just go back to your home unit and then wait to be called upon to, to do the job, uh, usually in a um, roto capacity. Um, but sometimes you can get posted to, actually, you know what? I'm gonna take that back. To be posted to the close protection unit, you typically need um, a deployment under your belt. Okay. So you need some, so you need some experience. And then you also um, kind of go through a, a little bit of a vetting process. So the unit will canvas potential close protection operators, and then they'll look at, okay, what kind of experiences does this person have? What teams have they worked on uh, and worked with? How did they perform on course? Um, because the, the CP unit is still quite a small unit, although we are growing in size significantly. Um, so I don't want to say that the unit is the best of the best um, because there's great CP operators scattered all over Canada. Mm. But, but we definitely want to bring in a wide breadth of experienced members who come from, um, you know, different backgrounds, different training, so that um, we can kind of help evolve the unit and the, the specialty more. Mm-hmm. And drawing on those resources. Is there any, I guess, sort of schedule for, for deployments, like once every few years, or is it just one comes up and, and then you sort of put up your hand and, and say that you'd like to go on that one? There's no like a strict schedule or a rotation of mm-hmm. personnel within the the capability itself. At, at the unit, there's there's a bit of a rotation. So um, you'll either be uh, in platoon doing ops full time, or you'll be cycled into training, or you'll be cycled into kind of uh, like a rest and recovery period. Um, so for for that, you know, you you kind of have a, you kind of know when you're going to deploy or or you won't. But for um, for the people who aren't at the unit, if they you know see uh, or hear about a deployment coming up and they need you know X amount of positions, then they can you know toss their name in the hat and maybe hopefully get get picked up for the deployment. Okay, nice. Yeah. What do you enjoy the most about your career? That's a tough question. I like all the challenges that have made themselves available to me so far. Um, obviously, I, I do like actively seek them out as well. But mm-hmm. uh, I just think, like especially doing CP, I've gotten to, to do so many amazing things and really put myself out there and, and try out for awesome stuff and, and learn new things. So... Um, yeah, I guess that doesn't really answer your question, but it kind of does. It does for sure. Yeah. The next question would be, what do you find the hardest part about your career? I think the hardest part has been finding my voice in the cast and finding the confidence to assert myself. And I think that's something that comes with time for any individual, male or female. But for so many years as a younger woman, I had so many insecurities about who I was and 
what my place was in the calf. And it took me a long time and a lot of like trials and tribulations to sort of really find that confidence that I so desperately wanted, you know, years ago. So that that has been probably the hardest part for me. That being said, I think these challenges that I've had in, in the military have helped develop me as an individual anyways. And so even though maybe some of them were really uncomfortable and difficult, they helped shape who I am now and my mental resiliency. And that has been so clutch for me today. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too, because after that first course and then not being selected or given your badge, a lot of people might have just thought, okay, this is it. This isn't for me. And then just sort of given up on that and then taken a different path. But you were like, nope, this is what I want to do. And you sort of recognize that and and took the steps to ensure that you'd be successful the next time. So how do you make that decision to go on rather than to take that step back? Um, It's funny because when I had reached the end of that course and I was told by the commandant, look, I'm sorry, but I'm not graduating you. Initially, I was so mentally burnt out from kind of trying to do this uphill battle that I thought, ah, you know what? If they don't want me here, then I'm not going to be here. And I wanted nothing to do with CP at that moment. But then after a few weeks of kind of, you know, going back home, letting things digest, looking back at things with a little bit more clarity, because emotions weren't as high after, then I realized, you know what, despite everything that had happened, I knew deep down that this is something that I could do. I had already shown part of what I could do. And I thought, imagine if I just trained a little smarter, knowing what I know now, I can go back and and crush this thing. And so... So I went back and I, I think I crushed it. <laughs> yeah, that's such an awesome story. So, yeah, it's so interesting to hear my interview with the Saratech. She had she had a lot of setbacks like that. I think she did her combat diver course a couple of times. And then she was doing the Sarah selection and realized for one of the first ones, it was like her navigation skills weren't the best. So then she worked on that. Then she went and crushed her course and is successful and is a Sarah tech now. So it's, it's interesting to see like things might not always work out the first time around, but then it's just that resiliency and just being relentless and and keeping at it. Right. And then you can have this super successful career and, and it opens so many doors. Yeah, I think I think when you know something is the right fit for you, you'll you'll get a sense for it. You'll know deep down. And that's when you know when to push ahead and kind of fight back and, and work towards that goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all tried avenues that didn't didn't work and uh when they didn't work, we weren't exactly filled with this like overwhelming sense of loss. And so we were able to keep going. But when you know, it's the right fit for you, you know, and you'll, you know, do whatever it takes Mm -hmm. to get that done to get to where you want to go. And what advice would you give to women wanting to join the Canadian forces? And specifically, if they're interested in close protection? Well, first and foremost, don't sweat where you are physically, in terms of your physical fitness. Um, when I first signed up for the Canadian Armed Forces, I couldn't do a single push-up. I could barely run. But it was something that I really wanted to do. And so, you know, at that time, all I had to do was nine push-ups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the old express test. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So don't don't get too bogged down with, well, I can't do this or I can't do that. 
So I'm not even going to try because it's not about what you can't do because most of these, especially physical things, you can work up to that and you can do it. Some old SEAL dude said that you're capable of 20 times more than you think. And I, and that's so true because your mind can either make you or break you. So, so yeah, don't get bogged down on what you can't do. Figure out a plan, write down your list of goals and you'll get there if it's something that you really want. Secondly, and this is very specific, I think, to women is and in, in to CP, find allies everywhere you go. And I, and I don't mean like, you know, figure out who your enemies are and then who your allies are and then create an us versus them environment because that's the opposite of what we want. But um, if you're a, you know, hard charging woman who, who wants to do something a little bit off the beaten path, like close protection or AMTOG or CSOR or SARTEC or any of those, you know, historically male dominated jobs, find allies that will aid in a and abet you to to succeed, male and female, mm-hmm. um, in all different capacities, whether they're people who work in the job or people who've just been in for a long time or friends and family, people who will be your sounding board for when you hit those hard times and um, and, and you have a roadblock to kind of help mentor you through those difficulties. Yeah, I think um, you know finding finding somebody who can pull you out of you know your own head from time to time is a uh, super clutch. Yeah, I find that word you said mentor. It is so important, and there's there are so many people in the Canadian forces who have that experience, and they're just you know they're so good at their jobs, but then they're also good at mentoring the younger people or the newer people coming up, and it's it, it is really important to to find them, and they can just be such an asset to have around. Yeah, precisely. And there's just one other thing I think that I would tell any woman trying to do, not just women who are interested in joining the CAF or interested in doing a specialty, but a woman trying to do pretty much anything that uh, she's not sure about. If it's something that you really want, but you're not sure that you have the skills or the knowledge or the confidence to do it, just always remember that there is someone or some man who's not afraid to do it mm-hmm. and, and might have less experience and less knowledge than you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like zero skills, but 100% <laughs> confident. Exactly. Yeah. There's So don't doubt yourself and just give her. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about what quality, like, you know, how I said that, oh, to, I, I want to do CSOR, but I need to do CP first because I'm not good enough. Forget that. If you want, if you want to go try out for CSOR and JTF tomorrow, and you haven't done a single deployment in your life, well, guess what? There are probably five other guys who have already applied and have no experience either. So just send it. Yeah, exactly. I hear that so many times, you know, people are like, oh, I want to do this, but oh, I think I need to do this, this, and this first as sort of like a, a stepping stone. But like you said, there's people literally out there, guys who are probably super new. Maybe they've been in their job for a couple of years, no deployments, like not really that yeah. much experience. And they're just like, yeah, I'm going to apply. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. So yeah, confidence yeah. is is definitely very important. And I think something that a lot of women probably struggle with. Yeah. And, and I think it's also part in, in our nature, women, when we do something, we want to, we want to do it really well. Mm-hmm. We want to be really good at it. And we want to uh, kind of knock it out of the park. 
And um, sometimes we hold ourselves back because we know we can't be perfect at something, but the world isn't always looking for perfection, you know, the mm-hmm. world is just looking for, for people who are motivated and will show up. Yeah, exactly. And the rest comes with time. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> really good advice. And yeah, just really interesting to hear about your career path. What's the next goal for you in your career? Well, so I'm actually starting French school. Okay. (laughs) So I've been, um, well, just to backtrack a little bit. So I said I wanted to do CP so I could do CSOR. So I did CSOR selection earlier this year, and uh, it obviously didn't work out the way I'd hoped it would work out. Regardless, an amazing experience, and I had a wonderful time. If anybody's out there thinking about that, (laughs) do it. Did you make it to the end of the seesaw selection? And do you think you'll ever try it again? So, no, I didn't. I didn't make it to the end. I made it to basically just past, I think, I think midnight on the third day. It's tough to keep track of those days. Yeah, the third day I was removed from uh, the assessment. And how long is their selection? So this year was a little abnormal because of COVID measures. Mm -hmm. There was a full week of quarantine prior to the start of the assessment phase. So, of course, I finished that part. That was easy. All I did was uh, hang out, eat really good food, and uh, get to know the people that I was going to be doing the assessment with. Once a seven-day period was up, then it was game on. Day one started, and um, the night before, like I said, I was so nervous, but so excited, but terrified, and I did not sleep a wink. But, you know, to be fair, I don't think anybody really slept that long or that well that night because of things to come. But no less, day one or day zero, as they call it began. And, you know, obviously I can't get into detail on what events were there or what it uh, looked like, but it was a really grueling morning for me. I think uh, some people probably fared a little bit better uh, depending on their sleep situation. But for me, it was absolute misery. I was so tired. I had a tough time staying awake and I just felt horrible. And I remember sitting down at one point, you know, staring into nothing Uh, just alone with my thoughts. I remember doing that mental battle that so many people before me have done, asking themselves whether you wanted to stay or not. And I remember thinking like, all right, well, I'm here. I'm sitting down. I'm doing this thing. You know, I put so much work into it. I'm not going to quit. I won't quit just yet. I'll, I'll wait until breakfast, like I said, have a nice meal, and then I'll quit. See how breakfast goes and then call it a day, whatever. You know, like that's kind of how I made it more palatable. Yeah. So made it to breakfast. It was good. I felt a little bit better. And I figured, all right, we'll see. We'll see what they do next. We'll see what kind of stuff we do next. And if it's okay, then I'll keep writing it out. And if it really sucks, well, just quit. And we got on to the next thing and I just decided, I'll stick it out, see what lunch looks like. And I just kind of did that until dinner time. And then once dinner happened, it kind of just, I started to feel better. I had food in me. I was drinking lots of water and I started to feel all right. And then I I stopped kind of having those like, um, you know, end of the world thoughts. And I started thinking, okay, there's a possibility that I might be able to make it through today. So I'm just going to stick it out and see what tomorrow brings. And tomorrow showed up, did a bunch of crazy stuff. 
And I just kind of, I hit a stride, I guess. And I felt really good after the first event on day one there. I was like, oh, you know what? I got this. I actually really have this. I didn't have good sleep the night before, but the second night I slept like a baby. I was so tired from not sleeping the night before. So by the time we were cut loose, I, for that moment of time, and I don't know how much time it was, I slept when I woke up felt, you know, kind of brand new again. And then I, we did the first event and it felt good. And then after that, that's when I really started to feel like, okay, I got this. I can finish this whole selection. No problem. And from there, like, I didn't really have any more of those teeter tottering thoughts of like, oh, should I stay? Should I not? This sucks. Blah, blah. It was more of being excited for the unknown and then just going to do some really interesting, really cool stuff that I had never done before. And so it started to become really, really cool to me and really fun. And let's not forget that here I was a candidate on a Canadian Special Operations Regiment assessment. So few people ever get to that point. And so it really dawned on me just how awesome it was. And I started to really enjoy myself. I mean, obviously there was quite a few different stressors in place to to make it uncomfortable but you know I think I'm I'm used to being uncomfortable having you know done a selection before and having done a lot of challenging things in the past being uncomfortable wasn't new to me and so um, those external stressors that they were putting on you you know the, yeah it, it made things exciting but it didn't bog me down that's such a great mindset shift. And also internally, like it would be so motivating for yourself to, once you did sort of get over that hump and then you you start feeling better, doing better, enjoying yourself. It's just that extra bit of motivation where you're thinking like, hey, I might actually finish this thing. That would just push you so much further mentally. Yeah, it really kind of proved to me or kind of cemented to me the the idea that your mind is a really powerful bunny ears muscle. And it can really dictate, you know, how you perform physiologically just by, you know, its state. So um, kind of like if you were to do a hard or let's say, you know, you wake up one morning and you feel really tired and really sluggish and you don't want to work out because you've been working out for weeks and, and they've been hard workouts and you tell yourself, well, like, I don't, don't really want to do this right now. Um, and then you have those days where you go and do it, even though you don't feel like it and you feel tired and you, you know, knock it out of the park, you get that faster kilometer sprint or, you know, you hit the lift that you didn't think you were going to hit. And that's just, you know, like the same thing to me. If you just kind of push through that tough time, you'll, you can really surprise yourself. So are you going to go back and attempt it again? The circumstance upon which I found myself no longer on assessment was um, I was doing an event, an individual event. And in that moment, I thought to myself, I think I'm going to dial it back just a little bit in this event so that I have more for, you know, the next event. And I should preface, preface this by saying that earlier that morning on, on day two or day three, I was hypothermic that morning. There was an event that morning that, you know, obviously I can't even talk about it, but I got uncontrollably. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, and had it not been for another candidate who was able to 
assess what was happening with me. He recognized that I was in a bad way and he came over and helped me. But um, so it definitely like took a lot out of me. Later on in an event, in that event, I figured, okay, I'm going to dial it back a little bit. I think I'm doing pretty good for time, but I don't want to, you know, push it too hard and then go down. So I dialed it back. I showed up to the end point of my event, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, saying my candidate number, I'm here, good to go. And uh, they just pulled me aside and said, I'm sorry, you're no longer a candidate on this assessment. And they sent me right back to my quarantine camp. So basically, long story to get to your answer. When I was taken off assessment, I was pretty blown away because up until that point, it felt like I had, I was doing really well. And I mean, you you can never really tell how well you're actually doing, but I felt good. And I felt like I could complete it. So when I was taken off, it kind of felt like to me, okay, maybe this is a sign that this isn't for you. Whether that's just emotions or, you know, how I really think, I'm not too sure yet. It's still like kind of fresh. Mm -hmm. You know, I did it in May and it's August now. So it's a little fresh. I don't really know where I stand with it yet. There's the possibility that I will, but it really kind of also depends on um, how things go with my current career with the French course, with my with business school, it does definitely f- feel like incomplete. Yeah, I understand that. Do you part. know what I mean? Like, I, yes. it's kind of a cliffhanger for me, and I, I certainly it doesn't sit well with me that it, you know I started something that I really didn't finish. It'd be a different story if I had finished the assessment and they deemed me unsuitable for the job. Actually, wait, that's the wrong terminology to use. That's pretty clear that um, it's not for me, but there's still that lingering what would have happened or what if. So uh, I won't say definitively that I won't try out again, but it certainly won't be next year unless they they change when they conduct the assessment because I'll be, I'll still be doing French, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it would probably be a little bit of an advantage having seen at least a couple of days of it, like, you know, how to train to prepare for that physically at least. And I mean, I don't know if you'd get any more sleep the first day, but I, I at least you would know like, okay, if I feel like junk junk the first morning, that's not necessarily how I'm going to feel exactly. the next few days kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, hopefully if you do decide to do that again, then you just make it all the way through and crush it. Well, I was going to, I was just going to add that, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not my favorite thing to talk about my setbacks and my failures, especially in a, in a more public forum. But um, I'm really glad that you asked me about this because when I endeavored to try out for CanSoftCom, I didn't have female mentors or models or bunny ears idols to draw inspiration from, you know, to do something like this. Because let's face it, CanSoftCom doesn't doesn't have female operators. I believe they had Seesaw had one female operator for a time, but they don't anymore. And mm-hmm. um, you know, in in popular culture and movies, magazines, stuff like that, you don't see, you know, female special forces. It's kind of unheard of right now. And I think for any woman out there that's listening to this and has even had, you know, the slightest inkling of wanting to try out for CanSoftCom to be an assaulter or an operator, I just want to tell them 
you can do it. You can totally do it. I know it's tough that you don't have somebody that you can look at and imagine yourself in their shoes, like how guys can. Because, I mean, guys look at Zero Dark Thirty. They can watch that movie, see those guys and envision themselves doing that job. Whereas who are we going to envision? You know, the beautiful intelligence operator, the CIA agent. Exactly. Yeah. That's I know what I mean. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because every now and then I would hear a really cool story from someone on a very alpha male podcast that I listen to. But then I'm like, oh, there's probably not very many women who listen to this podcast. So maybe there should be one like that to sort of encourage more women to do this. Or if they hear a story, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I could go try out for CSOR as well. And exactly. The other thing, regardless of gender, is I think that a lot of times we see these super successful people and we think that no matter what they do, they're just always successful and the path has been perfect. But a lot of times that's not the case. And, you know, people have done multiple selections or they've had hiccups in their careers along the way. And it's not always this perfect A to B road. It's like this long and winding up and down. So I think that's also really important to talk about as well, because, yeah, it's not always perfect. Yeah. Your life should be like a really good long-term stock where the overall trend is going up. But when you look closer on, you know, day to day, you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. And sometimes you're going to have really big lows, but what usually follows is a really, really big high. So yeah, we, we all fail. Nobody really talks about the failure portion of their successes, but if you do fail, certainly do not give up. Make it to that next meal. I know it's cliche, but do that. But yeah, uh, going back, didn't go the way I wanted it to. No problem. Starting French school tomorrow, actually. For a year. (laughs) (laughs) Done Yeah. Don't know French yet. Um, But I'll be doing that for a year in my unit, uh, the close protection unit has said that they've they want to bring me back. So I think, you know, knock on wood, I'll be going back to the unit there because they also do need a French capability for training. But I also was recently accepted into the Masters of uh, Business Administration in Executive Management uh, program. For uh, Yeah, so I'm going to business school as well, starting in September, which will basically take over my life for the next two years. So Mm -hmm. I don't really know where my my future lays or lies, I should say, but it has been a goal of mine to become a team leader Mm -hmm. in post protection. I think that's the next logical step. I've worked in platoon, I've done time in training, and I've done time as a in operations, so planning missions. I believe I'll be promoted next year. So it, it just kind of follows the natural evolution that I'll uh, be team leader qualified. And I hope if I stick with this, which I get the feeling I will, that I will uh, team lead a, a full team on a deployment. That would be amazing. Hopefully that works out. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood. I don't believe we've ever had that one. So that's, I suppose, my next aspiration. Amazing. So thank you so much and uh, good luck on your French course. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.